Hello and welcome to the European Council on Foreign Relations, Women of Middle East Network for Peace Building podcast. My name is Ellie Geremaya, Deputy Director of ECFR's MENA program. This is the third episode in our mini-series, bringing together leading women experts from the region to consider major developments uh, in the Middle East. This discussion looks at Iran, and it comes a year on from the nationwide protests that erupted in the country following the death of a young woman, Mahsajina Amini, while in police custody, having been arrested for not adhering to, the, uh, to Iran's strict dress code. Her death sparked national and an international movement behind the slogan known as Women, Life, Freedom. We are here with an excellent panel to discuss where the domestic dynamics inside Iran are now a year on from those nationwide protests and to assess where Western policy was successful or fell short or should be going to um, address the human rights conditions in Iran uh, going forward. On the podcast to discuss this, um, we have Tara Sepehrifar from Human Rights Watch, Susan Tahmasebi from Femina, an organization supporting women human rights defenders in the MENA region, and Sanam Vakil from Chatham House. Um, so let's kick off the discussion, but I will just add that we are recording this podcast on the 30th of August. Um, so if there have been some major developments that we miss in the discussions, that is why. So my, my first set of questions for our panel are really looking at where the chips have fallen in Iran following the uprisings and the protests last year. Tara, let me come to you first for you know an assessment of, you know, the statistics, where are we at the moment in terms of the human rights uh, conditions inside Iran? Indications that, you know, death penalties have been really on the rise uh, in the, the last six months of 2023. There's been mass arrests. Can you can you help us unpack where the situation is today? Um, sure. Um, knowing the exact statistics about human rights violations in Iran is a major challenge uh, in the absence of government transparency and um, granting access to independent human rights defenders uh, to monitor the situation in every round of widespread protest and, and subsequent government crackdown. One of the major challenges for human rights organizations and human rights defenders and ge generally civil society is to account for uh, violations that occurred and document them, um, um, many of it uh, without having access. Uh, what we know right now is that um, the initial wave of arrest immediately after the widespread protest that that um, sparked after the death in custody of Mahsa Jina Amini were in tens of thousands, according to government statistics. Um, there were um, dozens of um, death penalty uh, sentences that were issued. It was an unprecedented use of um, the charge corruption on earth that could carry the death penalty um, against protesters in recent years. And I mentioned recent years because we've had the mass execution of political prisoners in the early years after the uh, after the revolution. But we had the charge brought against children, um, against uh, groups of people without very specific um, indication of the actual crime. We had it brought against a rapper for simply um, 
provocative speech. Um, out of those, at least seven cases of executions have been carried out in connection to the protest. Um, several more um, are standing and are in the judicial process. Some of them have been overturned by the Supreme Court. Um, they are being reconsidered, uh, but not all. Um, in February, the government granted what appeared to be a pretty uh, widespread amnesty uh, for protesters, um, um, but uh, well-known human rights defenders, um, dozens of them, if not hundreds, were arrested during the protest. They were Many of them were excluded from those amnesties. And fast forward, really after the, the Iranian year and gearing up to the summer, we have seen yet another wave of uh, increased pressure and arrests um, against those who were released as part of amnesties, human rights defenders, dissidents um, who speak up and criticize government, and that could include public figures, popular singers, um, and also the families of those who are seeking um, justice and truth about uh, about their loved ones who were killed during the protest. As we're nearing the, the anniversary, the pressure has really taken up, uh, I assume, with the goal to prevent any kind of uh, mass gathering or mobilization. The pressure has also increased, I think it's important to note, on university students that played a very important role in um, in keeping the momentum of the protest in the fall. Um, so there has been um, suspension of uh, access to education, dormitories uh, for students, and that has now extended to university professors who have been outspoken and critical um, using many of the procedures that renew their contract or grant promotion to really sideline those who, who spoke up um, in, in defense of the protests. So I would say as we're nearing the anniversary, we have seen um, a, a, a massive uptake in, uh, in crackdown against peaceful dissent. Thanks, Tara. And just because this is an area where there's a lot of European uh, concern about uh, the rise of the executions and the death penalty sentencing. So you mentioned that from the data we have, seven executions were carried out in relation to the protest directly. But is my understanding correct that there has been also hundreds um, that have uh, you know, reportedly been executed for other reasons um, over the course of the past year, which is quite a spike from the previous year? In Iran. Correct. Um, so what happened um actually as a result of sustained international and particularly European engagement with the topic and, and coordinated multilateral pressure on Iran was that in 2017, Iran reformed its drug uh drug law, anti-narcotic law that raised the, the bar for imposing mandatory death penalty. That reduced the number of executions that, that were higher than what we're experiencing right now drastically. Many of the cases were halted for, um, for reconsideration, and we went through this period that the number of executions were on decline. We have seen that trend reverse over the past year. Um, with and and again, majority of executions are for drug-related offenses. These um, cases, it's important to mention that generally the situation of fair trial standards are very, very 
problematic in Iran. Um, and not just for political cases that we have more visibility and look in, look into from a closer perspective, but also for other crimes, including drug law charges, that defendants don't have access to a lawyer. They're often subjected to mistreatment and torture and use of coerced com- confession. So um, the, the, it's not only that they're carrying out execution, they're also carrying them as a result of extremely unfair trial proceedings. So Tara's pinning a very uh, repressive set of conditions on the ground in Iran, which may in part explain why um, the number of regular protests inside the country have seemingly fallen. Susan, let me come to you. Um, do you. What do you see happening on the ground? I mean, are the facts changing from these pictures of uprisings um, across the country to very important acts of civil disobedience um, that we've seen, you know, even across the summer with the famous Ashura processions in the country with continued, um, you know, artists pushing back with, you know, the number of women in the country that are now walking the streets um, without the hijab, despite the morality police uh, being seen on the streets again. How are you assessing the situation? Well, I think it's really important for people to keep in mind that what happened last year with the protests that erupted after the death in custody of Masajina Amini really signifies a long period of crisis within Iran, a human rights crisis, a crisis with respect to women's rights, and a long history of resistance as well. So I think I think it's important to really look at what's happening now as a part of a continuum. Women have been dealing with a great level of violence for for decades now, but especially the last few years leading up to these protests, women were faced with an array of violence. We have a, at Femina, we have a report coming out that really chronicles the types of violence that women were facing in the few years leading up to these protests, and that shows it shows exactly why the protests erupted. Um, both in uh, response to the uh, unlawful and unjust killing of Mahsa Amini, um, but also the way that the violent way that mandatory hijab was being enforced with respect to women, but array of other other types of violence. So I just I think it's important to, when we talk about resistance and protests that we keep in mind the multitude of um, actions that Iranians and also civil society take to express their dissent. It's not only through protests. That being said, I think it's important also to take note that women, as you mentioned, women are refusing to go back to the way things were. They're refusing to wear, many women, not all of them obviously, are refusing to wear the headscarf, the mandatory hijab. And we see videos of altercations between women and security forces, but also ordinary citizens on a regular basis. So the environment for women in Iran continues to be extremely hostile and dangerous if they take on acts of civil disobedience, but they're continuing to do this. And um, just a couple of days ago, we saw this woman who'd gotten into a snap, uh, which is the same as like an Uber, and the Uber driver started beating her up because she refused to wear the hijab. And I, I'm not sure if people saw that, but it was a chilling video and she resisted. So we see, we are going to see different forms of violence against women and women are resisting that type of types of violence and claiming their right to dress as they want and to have control over their bodies. We also 
I don't want to forget the families of those who were killed because we see a lot of resistance from those families consistently. They've kept the, the memories of their loved ones alive and they've continued to ask for accountability. That's why we've seen over 21 persons, you know, family members of those who've been killed um, that we know of who've been arrested in recent in recent days. So that shows that there's a lot of resistance coming from those families and the fear of the state um, with respect to repeated protests. Many of these families, from what we understand, have been called in and interrogated and pressured. So they've posted messages on their Facebook page, I mean, on their Instagram pages saying that they won't be holding events, but many have refused to succumb to this pressure and therefore they've been arrested. We, we, I think that people who are following Iran can see that multitude, um, uh, you know, many of these um, family members, whether they're women or not, or men, they've been arrested, including fathers of one of the executed young men who was executed, uh, was arrested recently. Also, we see civil society activists that are being arrested in an array of fields, whether it's the labor movement, those who are part of the left, or women uh, human rights defenders. Recently, we had in the northern um, uh, cities uh, in Gilan province, we had 12 women human rights defenders who were arrested in a coordinated effort. Um, their houses were stormed, their property was confiscated, and they were arrested. And we don't know what the charges are, but we can assume that this is because the state is af afraid of this civil disobedience, perhaps honoring um, some of those who had been killed last year or holding events or protests. They're trying to prevent that from happening. So um, many human rights defenders are being arrested in the lead up that shows this kind of civil disobedience and the continuum of resistance, even if it's not in the way of protests that we saw last year. But at least we know that people are resisting. They're continuing to raise the profiles of those who were killed. They're continuing to ask for accountability. And most likely they're planning events um, to mark the anniversary of the death of Massa and many others that followed. Thank you, Suzanne. So you mentioned this continued tension between uh, the society and the state at the moment. And Sanam, let me come to you because you know, last time we actually brought this panel together back in October last year, um, you know, we were really in in this context of a lot of people talking about a revolution being around the corner um, of, you know, major state uh, security vulnerabilities potentially showing up. Now the conversation has changed to more that, you know, this is the the, the road towards the revolution. Um, and I just wondered what you would take as a, someone who has been watching the leadership structures in Iran in recent years. Where are the power dynamics today between um, what you know some would describe as very hardline factions that have taken uh, a grip on power and the streets that are continuing um, with these acts of civil disobedience and resistance, as Suzanne pointed out? Thank you, Ellie, for bringing us together, and um, it's good uh, to be having this uh, conversation. Um, and I think you've asked a poignant question. Um, I think we're naturally wanting to define where we are. Um, six months or eight months ago, um, there was a, a serious discussion um, about um, how effective and quickly perhaps um, the protest movement could be, uh, and um, 
you know, my takeaway months later is that just because a revolution hasn't um, been set in motion uh, doesn't mean uh, that the conditions on the ground and uh, society has uh, um, somewhat changed and shifted. Um, what I really see is happening inside Iran is despite significant um repression, per regular crackdown, um, surveillance and pressure on Iranian individuals and society writ large, um, as well as a very direct um, state-leveled campaign um, to continue its policy of social repression um, of women, but also broader groups, um, and you know, very stringent economic pressure um, being placed on uh, Iranians from all walks of life. I do see a systematic um, effort um, that, in part, is organized, and um, at the same time, um, we could describe as um, uh, spontaneous. Um, we are seeing a regular pattern of protests um, that. Uh, I think are important and show uh, resistance. Um, we've seen even this summer without uh, organized um, hijab-led protests, we're seeing people having protested water shortages um, in, in the South and in, in uh, Khuzestan area. We've seen protests um, organized by pensioners um, looking at um, and responding to the massive uh, inflationary and economic pressure that they're under. Um, and despite the state's um, ability to uh, continue to be repressive, people are at the same time um, in different ways fighting back. Um, can I say that we're on the road to revolution? No, I don't think that um, I can define that yet. And I don't think that anyone can be so predictive, academic or uh, analytically speaking. Um, but we are seeing a very a serious and systematic dynamic between state and society that isn't uh, geographically located or thematically limited. Um, it is... Um, you know, sort of popping up uh, throughout the country at different points. And, you know, I do wonder how the Iranian system can continue to uh, rule through these repressive means. Um, and, you know, uh, I think, you know, one of the takeaways from this protest is that um, despite repression, if people are continuing to respond and push back and, and try to find new avenues to express their grievances, um, will this develop into uh, something more coordinated and um, organized? Uh, you know, that's what I'm looking for. I don't necessarily think it will be immediate and I don't think it will necessarily nor do I think it should be visible, but I, I imagine that there will be some spark in the future that will will bring people together. So for the time being, I expect this tug and pull to continue. Um, but I do see uh, the continued pushback and, and the continued um, push up from from um, ordinary people to be really striking and really reflective of the depths of frustration across um all of Iranian society. And I know you wanted to jump in, but let me also, in addition to the point you wanted to make, ask you, I mean, do you do you sense that there is discussion inside Iranian civil society about how to make their pushback more coordinated um, and impactful in terms of 
pushing for change, whatever that may be in their in their view? Um, yeah, I mean, just adding on um, to what Sanam was explaining, I think particularly um, from the outside when we're looking at is this the road to revolution? Is this the revolution? Everyone is focused on the point that is going to be about transformation of political power, political structure. I think what has been unique and extremely powerful about the movement in Iran, um, the the woman life freedom movement, um, has been its um, ability to um, create conversation, not just create it, take the conversation and transformation that was happening in many layers of the society, give it a framework, um, give it a unifying slogan that that touches various aspects of frustration and um, and spark um, conversations that's not only about transformation of political structure, but also the structure of power. Uh, one of the most um, inspiring quotes and, and um, reflections I have seen are from um, women who are taking on uh, the fight against compulsory hijab as an individual, and they see it as connected to the bigger struggle. And they they write about their fears, and they write about how they are in a dialogue with the society everything from their family, um, if they stand with them or not, to the more immediate circle of neighbors and the shopkeeper, to the the cab driver, the business that is every day deciding, the small business owner that every is, is making a decision every day on providing services to people who do not comply by compulsory hijab laws or not, to the broader society this, and, and what it means for a transformation of power. So I think um, some of these layers are not immediately visible to those who are looking to see when the Iranian government, when the Iranian authorities are going to change course. Um, some of these gains are hard fought and are, are actually being paid um, by women who are taking enormous risk and by small businesses, by people who give up their um, their safety, security, income. I don't think they're necessarily reversible anymore. And how that is going to transform um, the society and has tra- already transformed the societies remain to be seen. But I think that those are some of the very positive outcomes, however you want to look at it. Um, In terms of Iranian civil society and conversation inside the country, I think there's a lot of conversation that's happening. The leaderless nature of the movement has actually created space for conversation to happen between different uh, movements and different civil society groups and those who work on labor issues, students, women. For the first time, I think the center is taking notes of issues of intersectionality in particular, not just related to gender, but also related to ethnic minorities, um, because both Zahedan and Kurdistan have played a major role in, in, in uh, keeping momentum with the protest. Um, the reality is that the space for um, creating sustained and coordinated action in Iran is very, very limited. Um, people tried to organize a clubhouse event from inside the country and they brought um, different political faction from the families of those who've been killed to political people. They had several messages from, from political prisoners inside prison and they were immediately shut down. But I think 
they have been thinking about these issues. They're finding ways to put out content and messaging. Um, the reality is that they have to overcome many barriers, not just the government repression, but also um, the isolation they face in general in Iran in terms of connecting to their peers outside the country, creating solidarity outside the borders and having their message heard and understood and their struggle being seen um, by by the broader uh, international community. Thanks, Tara. So you you sort of projected where things are going from the civil society side um, in the months ahead. So Sam, maybe I can come to you um, to assess where you think um, the Iranian state is going in the months ahead in terms of dealing um, with what looks like um, a very constant tug of war with the streets um, that they're going to be facing. I mean, over the summer, there's been all this controversy around um, a new um, state law coming in, which, uh, you know, I, I call it the hijab tax, where they are moving from, um, you know, using the, the you know, iron fist, uh, but adding to that, uh, you know, social and legal repercussions um, for people partaking um, um, in removing their hijab or supporting um, women who are doing so. I just wondered from your take where you think um, the the Iranian state across the different branches um, is headed in terms of reacting um, to this continued resistance. Well, I think the Iranian state has taken an extremely repressive approach um, towards this dissent. Um, it's par for the course. They have never, you know, the Iranian state has very, very rarely responded to demands of its citizens in a positive way. And, you know, now that there are all these, all these um, demands that have piled up and have, you know, multiple sources of discontent and dissatisfaction that has brought people out into the streets with women's issues being very central. They have decided to take a more repressive approach, and they've done that with respect to the hijab laws. Um, the hijab laws that were being proposed are are extreme um, on multiple counts. I mean, just the level of uh, fines that are being imposed on women are unheard of. These these fines are three, four times the amounts of salaries of of you know regular salary salaries, basic salary, government employees, for example. So which is not um, for for just not observing the hijab. And then every time that that offense is repeated, those fines increase. So. Um, what it will do, I think, and then also there are multiple fines on establishments, on businesses, if their employees do not observe the hijab, extreme fines, and also fines if their customers don't observe the hijab. So we're going to see, I think we're going to see not only the state enforcing the hijab laws, um, but also individuals, citizens enforcing hijab laws because they have a lot to lose financially in terms of doing this. So we're going to see more violence against women that's perpetuated by the state and by the state policies. And the state recognizes that these policies and this approach is incredibly um, unpopular. That's why they have decided to discuss the hijab laws in clandestine. Um, they're not going to discuss this publicly. They've used a, a, a law that allows them to, to sort of have a discussion about 
about the hijab laws, where it's not clear what position different parliamentarians are taking and, um, you know, what, what the law would actually entail. So this is extremely concerning as well. I think this, these levels of fines will also um, create a, a division between uh, women who have have the means to defy the laws, who can pay for those those fines, and then those women who can't pay those those fines. So there's going to be an economic um, uh, division um, in terms of women who are allowed to choose uh, how to dress, along with the other policies that the state is imposing, especially on women, but also on society. For example, we saw a year a year before these protests broke out, we saw the um, adoption of the rejuvenation of the uh, Iranian population bill that not only extremely restricted um, women's reproductive health rights and their rights to their own bodies, but also um, put it, it adopted mechanisms that would um, push forth the ideal concept of a family um, as defined by the state. And, you know, it would put in hiring practices that would favor men with families, men with children, uh, incorporate incentives for women if they had more children. So really a cultural war also against women and also the against society, because the society is also in, advanced considerably beyond. I mean, I, I think, you know, even 40 years ago, society was much more advanced than what the ideals of the state were with respect to Iranian women in the Iranian family, but even but in the last decades, it is also advanced. So there's an incredible level of repression. And I also want to add that there's also an incredible level of repression against people who organize the civil society, the, especially the women's groups. We've seen a lot, as I mentioned before, a lot of women in different sectors within the labor movement, within the women's movement who've been arrested recently, but have been, you know, last year when the protests broke out, there were the first groups who were arrested. Many of them continue to remain in prison. Some have been pardoned, but even those who've been pardoned are, are being called in again and being, you know, being sentenced or being interrogated, being pressured. And, you know, there's also, you know, within this hijab bill, I should mention, there's also extreme fines and um, uh, punishments Um for people who organize against the hijab. So that it's seen as a security threat um, and they're dealing with it as a security crime. And also for celebrities who speak up against this fine, I think something like 20% uh, of their finances or of their assets will be seized by the state. I don't, I'm not sure of the 20%, but I'll look it up before we leave and let you know what that is. Um, but yeah, so it's really, they've taken an incredibly repressive approach but instead, they could be responding to some of these demands. They're not. They're choosing not to do it, as they've done for, for decades, unfortunately. Thank you, Susan. So, uh, again, a very grim um, pictures of, of where things are headed on the state side uh, of, of reaction to what may come ahead. Um, Sanam, let me come to you. Um, you know, when when these uh, protests erupted uh, and through the course of the past year, um, there's been a lot of lashing out against um, the clerical establishment, um, who who was you know in the in the front 
of of the revolution in 1979, you know, videos of uh, turbans being tipped and people celebrating those. Um, There's been a lot of backlash to the so-called reformist faction not stepping up to the plate um, to organize themselves in this moment of, let's say, opportunity uh, to push for reforms. And, you know, there is this growing sense that um, the the country's most hardline factions, including those amongst um, the, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and the security apparatus, actually have the upper hand in, in the power balance of the country today and, and going forward. I wondered what your assessment of this was, um, and and you know where where you think the the, the power dynamics are going to lay in, in the coming year ahead. Yeah, uh, you you've nicely sort of um, described uh, some of the pushback and and deep frustration, I think, that um, Iranians have faced with uh, their political elites. Um, I certainly think that uh, the environment in Iran uh, today is is very febrile. Um, President Raisi, as as we know, was elected on a record low voter turnout. um, And the socioeconomic situation um, is fragile and has certainly diminished um, his uh, ratings, if, if, if we could even think um, how low they could possibly be, um, the crackdown, the executions, the deaths, the arrests and imprisonment alongside the layers of um, economic crisis, I think, um, and the inability of the system to improve uh, the economy, um, I think, has led to uh, two sort of dynamics. Um, the state has become much more insular. Um, there's less visible debate um, taking place in a system where domestic politics um, uh, and factionalism um, provided uh, insight into uh, divisions and policy discussions um, that were sort of dividing uh, the system. Reformist politicians did call and and, and lightly continue to call. Um, I think pres- former President Khatami also did so just a few days ago for change, uh, reform, constitutional change, if you will. Um, we did see some debate taking place over how um, the system should respond to the unrest. Um, there were, of course, hopes that in advance of um, next year's uh, parliamentary election, that there would be a more inclusive political environment and more inclusive um, effort at building bridges uh, across the political system with reformists being um, still very marginalized. Um, but there have been no indications that bridges are being built. In fact, professors continue to be purged. The bureaucracy has been purged of um, people uh, who uh, do not share the same sort of ideological views and leanings uh, with hardliners in the system. Um, and so, you know, if you look at the facts on the ground, not the sort of dream scenario uh, that I think uh, many people were hoping for, at this point, I, I fully expect this narrowed state uh, to try and preserve um, their monopoly on power um, and to prevent the structural reform uh, that uh, people were hoping uh, might um, come to fruition. And I think that also if you just look at the closed debate taking place on uh, the hijab 
legislation. Um, you know, this it also shows that very narrow group of people are involved in decision making. Um, yeah. Further than that, if you um, also consider that um, the head of the Supreme National Security Council, um, a new head has been appointed to that position, and uh, Ali Akbar Ahmadian is is you know not a, a reformist. In fact, he's a sort of stalwart commander of the IRGC. Um, you know, very much focused on uh, internal and external security. You know, this all sort of comes together and paints a picture, at least to me, on the outside, um, that the system is going to continue to remain insular um, and is is not going to open its doors uh, to uh, reformists or um, to others across the system um, that would like to have debate and would like to encourage openness. And this is also a system simultaneously that is not building vertical bonds with um, a fractured society. Uh, so, you know, uh, sorry to add to the bleak picture, but um, you know, this is a narrow group of, of leaders that are, are choosing to rule in a repressive um, and closed way. And, and this certainly doesn't bode well for any hopes of transformation or reform. Thanks, Anam. Let me um, let me come to you all with some questions about um, Western policy towards Iran to wrap things up. And um, as we're short on time, I'll ask you to keep things uh, brief. Tara, let me come to you because you know there's been a lot of demands made of Western countries, uh, especially in Europe, um, to uh, to respond to the events inside Iran by um, you know disconnecting all diplomacy and diplomatic channels with the Iranian state. Um, there's been lots of push and calls for the designation of the IRGC as a terrorist organization. But can you tell us, uh, from a human rights perspective, what you think going forward are some important steps that can be taken by the West, especially the US and Europeans, that can have a tangible impact on the conditions um, inside Iran for human rights activists um, at large? I mean, I think that's the million dollar question that everyone is exploring. Um, um, in um, in the wake of the uprising in Iran, um, I think it was a very important to see the global solidarity that we saw coming from the outside. People were demanding it, were looking for it, and it sent a message that they were being seen. I wish um, and they have governments, particularly Global North government, had worked more to create um, pressure on Iran that was beyond just the quote unquote Western pressure. Because the question is, this is that some of the actions they've taken, particularly the human rights designations, having a human rights council session, setting up a particular mechanism to look into the potential uh, international crimes committed during the protest and, and the crackdown. Those are all um, the necessary and very welcome steps. I think where they, uh, they could have gone beyond the messaging was to try to actually think through how to create multilateral pressure on Iran that was just beyond the, the usual suspect, because you're dealing with the state that has made it part of its narrative to fight against this Western influence values. Um, so I think the support we saw um, 
it wasn't as broad, but the support we saw in Latin America, the support we saw among feminist movements in the global South was very, very crucial. Um, and that should be harnessed. And I think governments are in a position to do that. Another clear step that the U.S. government took action early on um, and was was important and remains to be in, important is facilitating Iranians' access to internet and safe communication technology. There's no question about the fact that uh, with severe restrictions for um, gathering in Iran, um, access to internet remains the tool for people. Um, what with the general license that the U.S. government issued, the um, early on after the process uh, intended on facilitating uh, private sectors um, opening up more platforms to Iranians, uh, U.S. essentially was removing its own barrier from the equation. Anything that could be done to make sure that sanctions that are broad and impact um, various um, interactions of both international civil society and private sector with Iranian citizens in their effort to get more access to um, to um, different foras, internet, all of those, I think, are are actions that are ultimately intended at at um, at empowering Iran, um, Iranians who are fighting. Um, so in short, I think the latter part that needs to be worked on a year after the protest and um, where those are not necessarily quick, easy impact actions, but the ones that require um, require persistence and, and programming and, and thinking through is finding ways to support this society that is fighting back. Um, that means keeping the human rights defenders inside the country at the center of the conversation, bringing attention to their cases, calling for their releases, calling uh, on um, on authorities to um, respect the um, international standards. It means finding ways to create space for the society to be able to express itself, to build bridges, to open up. But these are not easy, easy fixes. And I think that also, and also keeping the pressure on Iranian authorities about the human rights. But keeping the pressure um, requires leverage and requires interaction and requires potential for impact. So there is a very delicate balance of using the using the, the potential that exists to pressure Iranian authorities, um, but also keeping the leverage and, and creating uh, it's extremely difficult to create for the incentive for this government to want to change course on human rights. There's no doubt about it. Um, what I think would make um, the, a much stronger case for actions that are being unfolding um, against Iranian authorities who are violating human rights is to do it more consistently across the board, um, not just against Iran, but also other against other human rights violators, particularly in the region. Um, and putting the, the some of the crisis, crises of accountability, impunity, situation of human rights in a more regional and global perspective. Thanks, Sarah. Susan, let me come to you. I know you wanted to make a, a correction to one of your comments, um, but also I wanted to, to see what you thought is working and might work better going forward in terms of Western policy towards helping the human rights situation on the ground in particular. Over to you, Susan. Sure. So um, I mentioned the 
that celebrities who ad, who um, defy the hijab laws, they would lose uh, 20% of their assets. And according to this new hijab bill, at least the parts that we've seen of it, um, or we've heard of it, but it's actually 10%. We don't know what the final law will look like, but this is some of what's being proposed. So it's, it's incredibly punitive. Um, I asked the international community, I think I agree with, uh, with what Tara said, but I also asked the international community to really um, uh, put... Um, pressure on Iran through diplomatic means, if they're negotiating or if they're putting pressure, whatever, whatever means that they have, um, that doesn't actually harm Iranians further. So I want to make that clear. Um, uh, to prevent a further um, uh, regressive and punitive measures against women, um, to hold Iran accountable for the violations of human rights against women, but especially also ethnic minorities um, in Kurdistan and Baluchistan region, region who've suffered the most as a result of these protests, who've paid the highest price. Um, nearly half of those killed in protests come from these two areas, from the Kurd Kurdish areas and from Baluchi areas. And these communities need to... Um, uh, you know, their their suffering and the price that they've paid needs to be acknowledged by the international community and Iranian government needs to also um, be accountable for that violence. And, you know, I think we're coming upon perhaps a new round of violence by the Iranian state as people begin to commemorate the one year anniversary of these protests and of all the killings of killings of 500 um, civilians who were, you know, who were unarmed, who were killed by the state. We're going to probably see a lot more violence, a lot more arrests. So that needs to also be um, front and center in terms of the community, in the international community's dealings with Iran. They need to be aware of the pressure that human rights defenders particularly women human rights defenders are facing, but also if uh, others get killed or, you know, if there are execution sentences, they need to use all means within their power to stop those executions, to engage with Iran um, if they have relations, especially those countries from the global south that have enjoyed good relations with Iran should use their power of persuasion with Iran to stop the violence that Iran is using, the Islamic Republic is using against Iranian citizens. Um, but for the international community, especially Europe, Canada, and the U.S., I have very particular um, requests that I think that, you know, it, they can actually meet those requests. It doesn't require pressuring Iran or getting Iran to do something that perhaps it's very resistant towards. But what they can do is to support women human rights defenders and human rights defenders in general who have had been forced to flee the country and also protesters who've been injured, who are now outside the country. Um, there, there are many cases, many of them in Turkey or in Kurdistan, and they're in very um, dangerous situations because both Kurdistan regional government and also uh, Turkey has close collaborations with the Iranian security forces. So some of them are in, in facing possible, um, uh, you know, um, return to Iran, um, but others are in a state of limbo. And the international community can respond. They've many of them have 
have expressed solidarity with Iranian protesters. Some of some of the politicians in the West have cut their hair in, in support of Iranian protesters and Iranian human rights defenders. But this is something that they can do. They can create mechanisms to allow for relocation of some of these people who feel their lives and their safety and their freedom is in danger if they return to Iran or if they live in Iran. And um, yes, this is something very practical that Europe can do to support Iranians. Thank you, Susan. I, I absolutely agree. And, you know, a, a few months into the protest, we put out a piece urging, actually, the Europeans to use their diplomatic presence and embassies on the ground in Iran to identify people who could have um, support for safe passage out of Iran, at least temporarily if needed, um, during these tense times. So thank you uh, for bringing that to their attention as well. Sanam, let me come to you for some concluding thoughts. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot of um, murmurs about diplomacy between the West and Iran reigniting in recent months um, on these what are called de-escalatory measures across the board on areas that are, you know, of, of key priority to Western strategic security interests, namely the nuclear issue, um, Iran's uh, relations and military cooperation um, with Russia, and also um, reducing uh, escalatory behavior from Iran in the Middle East, um, targeting uh, U.S. personnel and assets. And, you know, th those um, in the camp that argue there should be no diplomacy with Iran um, following um, the Mahsa Amini protests, um, see these diplomatic measures, including the recently announced um, detainee deal between the US and Iran, as a slap in the face uh, for human rights defenders on the ground inside Iran. But I just wondered, as someone who's also been watching Western policy choices on Iran for, for many years, um, how do you think going forward the West is going to, um, you know, proceed in its relations with the Islamic Republic of Iran in light of what's happened over the past year domestically in the country? That is a key question, and I think it is a, a real struggle for Western policymakers um, across the board. Um, I think that um, Western countries, primarily in, in Europe and in the United States, have not done um, a balanced job in trying to address their security challenges um, that they that are legitimate and that they uh, must confront vis-a-vis -vis the Islamic Republic, Iran's accelerating nuclear program, support for Russia, as you mentioned, in the war in Ukraine, um, its regional destabilizing role. Um, these require um, policies of engagement and, and uh, diplomacy, but also deterrence. Um, at the same time, of course, um, you know, the West it doesn't seem to um, pursue those strategies while also taking a consistent approach and consistent stance on human rights and human rights violations, um, not just in the Islamic Republic, but as Tara mentioned, around the Middle East. Um, so, you know, very effectively, I think uh, balance needs to be struck. You can't uh, call out human rights uh, from September to March and then stop using um uh, Twitter accounts to express solidarity uh, with protesters or to condemn executions. Um, that that kind of support um, for protesters and, and condemnation can happen alongside 
diplomacy and deterrence. And um, unfortunately, I don't think Western countries have struck that balance. And that goes, that criticism is out there directed towards the US, but also Germany that took a very strong, staunch approach um, towards the protest, defending the protesters, but has really, from my vantage point, been very quiet through the months of executions um, and the continued repression of Iranian society. Uh, the West should should and must walk and chew gum on Iran and, of course, on violations of human rights um, in the region uh, more broadly and, and showing a concerted and united um, front on these violations um, and calling out the Islamic Republic, naming and shaming the Islamic Republic and bringing media attention, uh, we do know um, uh, does uh, put pressure on, on, on the leadership in Iran. It doesn't necessarily result in immediate or um, uh, necessarily um, impactful change, but that pressure is something that the Islamic Republic is sensitive to. And I think that um, that balance needs to be struck and it is incumbent upon us as researchers and analysts uh, to push for that balance. Thank you, Sanam. Um, and thank you everyone for persisting with me while I go way over time. Uh, let me come to our uh, last uh, section of the podcast, which is our bookshelf uh, for suggested articles, books, or um, or visuals that you may have up your sleeve um, as we wrap this discussion up. Mine is uh, very pertinent to today's discussion. It's a piece in the New Yorker uh, from August called The Protests Inside Iran's Girls' School, um, which I thought pays a very interesting picture from on the ground reporting of how young girls are viewing um, the shifts and the dynamics on the ground inside Iran. Tara, let me come to you for your um, uh, bookshelf. So mine is actually not a very long article, but the reason I chose it is because I thought the framing of approaching the issue was interesting. It's called um, um, Iran's Hijab Industrial Complex, and it's by a journalist, Kurosh Ziaberi, in the uh, New Lines magazine. I thought it was really interesting that he tried to speak about the economy of enforcement of hijab and different stakeholders that benefit from, from this this in, um, this um this system that has been created. Um, I think it's the beginning of the conversation, but I thought I thought it would shed um, light and look at it from a different perspective. Thanks, Tara. Susan, over to you. So um, as I mentioned earlier, I talked about the continuum of resistance that it's been going on for a long time. And a couple of days ago was the 17th anniversary of the One Million Signatures campaign. And so I've gone back to the website, which is kind of hard to find, and just rereading some of the articles and especially the articles that um, young activists wrote about their encounters with ordinary citizens as they tried to convince them to sign the the petition of the One Million Signatures campaign, which was a petition to the um, Iranian parliament asking for reform and laws that discriminate against women. This, you can take a look at the site. It's the it's we-change.org. Um, and there's an English section, not as rich as the Farsi section, but definitely take a look at that site just to get a sense of what, what um, uh, you know, the struggle that Iranian women have gone through for so many for so many decades to try to create change that unfortunately has fallen on deaf ears. Thank you. And Sanam, over to you. Thank you, Ali. Um, I have two, if that's OK. Um, I'm not quite finished, but I'm reading uh, Kylie Moore Gilbert's uh, The Uncaged Sky um, about her time in um, prison in Iran. And I, I think it's um, very powerful and, and really well written. Um, 
So I, I recommend that. And the other um, isn't um, isn't directly about Iran, but I think it's very relevant. It's an academic piece um, in a journal called Cultural Anthropology, called Bureau craft state makers in Amman and Baghdad by two academics, Jose Martinez and Omar Siri. And it's a very interesting piece that's relevant to Iran um, because the piece talks about um, through an ethnographic ethnographic study about bakers and soldiers and how bureaucratic assembly lines um, speak about bureaucracies and how ordinary people are involved in the concept of bureaucraft and what does that tell us about how authoritarian states um, maintain resilience. It's not just uh, people in power at the top, but it, you know there is a um, there are layers to bureaucracies that are important, and then it can be um, people in um, in in uh, the the state, but it can also be people carrying out their jobs at bakeries and checkpoints. Thank you very much. Looking forward to reading all of those items. Um, let me thank you um, all for listening to this uh, podcast session of Women of Middle East Network for Peace Building. Let me thank our special guests, Tara, Susan, and Sanam, and also my colleague at ECFR, Elsa Schultz, for putting together today's podcast. Um, I'm sure we are going to come back to this topic of Iran many, many times um, over the course of the coming year as things develop. And uh, let's hope we do so under more optimistic set of circumstances. So for now, uh, from ECFR and myself, Ali Garamaya, wish you a good day. Thank you very much.